good morning, y'all. <clears throat> so uh, my name's Ed Griffinagan. I'm one of our pastors here at my church, and I want to, well, Richard welcomed you, but I also want to welcome you here, folks that call my church home, new people, folks wa- wa- uh, watching online, and so forth. Look, as a, I want to give you a little bit, before we get into the message today, I want to give you a little follow-up, and I sent an email out this week. I hope you read it. If you didn't read it, it's in the worship guide. But I want you to hear a couple of these things from my mouth, too. The last three or four weeks, this series has been challenging. It's been challenging to preach, and it's been challenging to hear, because some of the words in the Scriptures are challenging. They challenge us, and I, I think God doesn't ask us to check our brains at the door. He doesn't ask us to have blind faith. He asks us to have reasonable faith, faith and intelligent faith, and hopefully this is causing... Uh, that's causing you to dig into the scriptures. Hopefully it's getting us all on our knees to pray for God's wisdom and discernment and, and, and just being able to dig into the text of the Bible. Because I told you, I've said it 20 times probably, that we're not going to shy away from and ignore the challenging passage in the scripture. So one of them last week was Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. Uh, and that's a challenging passage. And I want to give you a little follow-up out of my mouth. Uh, and, you know, you could say that the, the, really say that the title of that passage, if passages had titles, you know, you could really say that Jesus is saying, receive people as you would receive me. That's really what that passage is saying. And it's not a parable. It's a glimpse into the judgment day. That's what it is. Now, there were a couple of parables at the beginning of chapter 25 that are kind of setting up for that one where he, he does talk about the judgment day and he talks about being prepared for that day, uh, being prepared. And what are we going to do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back? And at the end of the day, the crux of it is what, we, what he tells us to do while we wait and are, are getting ourselves prepared is to care for other people. He gives us six examples about caring for other people. And those six examples that he gives us uh, in, in Matthew 25, that latter part of that chapter, he gives us, you know, feeding the hungry and and visiting folks in prison, and, and those six things. That's not an exhaustive list. He could have put any a hundred different things in there. It, you know, it could have been serving in my kids. It could have been serving in the park, you know, on the parking team or in the cafe or, or just sitting down with a friend and praying. It's about, it's a heart thing. The last three or four weeks have been all about the heart. And so in this passage, it's all about as you wait for me, to come back, care for the needs of other people. It does, it does not mean if you do not feed the hungry, you're going to hell. It does not mean that uh, if you feed the hungry, that you are going to heaven. These, are, 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 these acts of mercy are evidences of salvation. They're, they don't cause salvation. And while it may seem on the surface to appear to, to, uh, to look like salvation by works, it is absolutely not salvation by works. Think about this, this sort of major premise that is there, and that is that saving faith is the basis for these acts of mercy. They're not the cause of salvation. They're done because of your salvation not in order to gain your salvation. And these last three weeks have been challenging scriptures to walk through. 
and, I, and I'm just not going to back away from it. We're not going to back away from it. We're going to dig into it. The Bible is true and without error, period. If it seems to be contradicting itself, it's not. If it seems to be in error, it is not. It is all completely infallible and inerrant. And if we look at the full counsel of God's Word, it tells us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Salvation is by not by works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Somebody should say amen to that. I mean, that is an amen. So today... We're going to be talking about, the. if there's a title of the message, it's The Gospel Demands Freakish Giving Part 2 is, is today's message. And we're going to uh, get into some particulars today. We're going to talk about money today. We're going to talk about the relationship of our hearts and money. Are those two, do they have anything to do with each other? Uh, our hearts and the condition of our hearts and our money, number one. And then we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about, Tithing, a question that I believe is going to be good for us to walk through together about tithing. What about it? Is, uh, is that just an Old Testament thing and we're not bound to by that anymore? Um, but I want, to, I want us to walk through a biblical answer, the full counsel of God, of God's Word. A biblical answer, or a biblical, let us be led biblically to what the Scriptures say about tithing. And I want to get this on the table, and I've said this to y'all before. And this is, I get this. I mean, this money conversation is difficult. It's difficult to, it's not difficult like it's hard to understand. It's challenging. It's just tough discussions. And I remember, um, and I've said this to you all before, uh, and I, it wasn't that many years ago that Susan and I, or my wife Susan and I, are sitting in our great room. And Susan says to me, do we give right to the church? And I said, well, yeah, we give. And she said, well, that was weak. That was not, like, the answer I was looking for. She said, do we tithe? Do we give like God is really first? And my answer to her was when we can. How many of you have ever thought that or said that or even lived that way? You're lying. There was like one hand that went up. When we can is what I told Susan. And this was a defining moment in our walk with the Lord. This was a defining moment in our marriage. This was a defining moment in our family. She says, do we give right? I said, kind of. She says, do we tithe? I said, when we can. And she looked at me and said, well, you better man up, bro. She tells me stuff like that all the time. You better man up. And so I manned up. We manned up. Our family manned up. Um, I want us to look. We're going to look at some different places in Scripture. And I want us to look first at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is in the middle of the largest block of instruction that Christ gives us anywhere in the Scriptures. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. 5, 6, and 7, that Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if, you, if your Bible has red letters for Christ, those three chapters are all red. Because this is a... It is Him sort of telling us, giving us instructions of how to live in the kingdom how to live and walk a, a, a Christ-like life. And so here at the beginning of chapter 6, he's dealing with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. We talked about the Pharisees last week. They're the super-religious folks. And he gives us, in this part of chapter 6, he gives us some 
examples uh, of their ridiculous hypocrisy. He gives us a glimpse into the condition of their hearts. We're going to talk a lot today about our, about our hearts. So number one, he says at the beginning of this, he, he says, don't do good for applause. Don't do good for pats on the back. Don't do good so somebody will come up and run and tell you thank you. And so verse 1 says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. So number one, he says, don't, don't do good for applause. And number two, he's talking about the, uh, the, the way that they make such a big deal and they're praying out loud and you know, screaming and yelling their prayers uh, all up in people's face so everybody will see just how holy they are. That's what the Pharisees did. They prayed and they, if you see, if you see pictures or videos even today at the Western Wall in Israel, you will see them standing up and they're doing this and it's, it's, it's just chanting and chanting and do, so everybody kind of looks at them and sees them. This is in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, do not be, and again, these are Christ's words. When you pray, do not, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And number three, it's the way, the way, the, the way that they make themselves look miserable when they're fasting so that everybody would see just how spiritual they are. This is verse 16. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. And I, I read that and then I think, Lord, please let me be a guy, let us be a family that can give in private that can do whatever we do sort of in private. Don't let me be the guy that, and we all know a guy, the guy like this, writes a check so that there's a plaque on the wall that says the Ed Griffin Hagen Worship Center. Don't let me be that guy. Let me be the guy that does this in private. All, I hate to say all by myself, but just kind of flying a little under the radar. Now, chapter 6 is about motive. It's about our hearts. Give to the poor? Of course give to the poor. Pray, of course pray. Fast, beyond a doubt, fast. But what is the motive behind that? What is driving that is so that other people will look at you and say, oh, look how holy he is. Because that was the motive for the Pharisees. Beyond all doubt, that was a motive for the Pharisees. Because their heart condition wasn't right. Their hearts were jacked up. There's evidence after evidence after evidence in the New Testament of their hearts being jacked up. And our our motives flow straight out of our hearts. Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do that. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And the pinnacle of this passage is verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart and your treasure are tied together. Where the treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Where your heart is, there's where your treasure is going to be. We tend to divide life into a material bucket and a spiritual bucket. You know, and I, 
I talk about reading the scriptures in context, and part of reading the scriptures and learning how to interpret the scriptures is to get your feet in the sandals of the of the original hearer of the word. What did the original uh, writer, human writer, what did he say? What did he intend? And what did the hearer hear? And so, if you if you can do that, because the the back then, uh, Jesus when he spoke. When he lived, all of the the ancient Middle Eastern people, they didn't separate the material bucket and the spiritual bucket. It was all kind of one bucket. That's the way their brains worked. And that's you have to understand that when you're reading the Scripture. And so Jesus, as he wrote many, many parables, they were about having the right attitude towards wealth because it wasn't stuff was material and then the spirituality was over here, they, they, they kind of were in the same bucket. And so he wrote many parables about having the right attitude towards stuff, towards money, towards material wealth. And if the Holy Spirit is inside of us and working on us, we ought to have the right attitude about material things, about material wealth. And it may not happen for anybody just like that. But as we grow and as we mature and the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts, it will develop. Now, God is not ignorant either. God is not naive either. He understands that everybody's sitting here, me included, that we need things in order to live. We, we do need things in order to live. And wealth in and of itself is not evil. We talked about that last week. Money's not evil. Cars aren't evil. Um, um, houses are not evil. No, none of these things, money is not evil in and of itself. But it is wrong for these things to possess us. It is wrong for them to get and, and ultimately form a wedge between us and the Lord. And the Bible warns us over and over about being greedy. It warns us about the sin of living for the things of this life. So what does it mean in these verses 19 through 21? What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? And it means to use all that we have, everything that we have for the glory of God. It means to dive in and jump in and be all in for Him. It means measuring life by the true riches of the kingdom and not the false riches of the world. It's a, it's a worldview thing. It's a, it's a, and, and it's not complicated. It's not difficult. It is a worldview thing. It is at its core, it's a, it's a heart issue. You look at your bank account, you look at your credit card statement, you look at your check register, and you know what you're going to see? If we were to do that, we would, what would be staring us straight up in the face is our heart. The desires of our heart will be staring you. It's a window, it's a window into our hearts. The desires of our hearts manifest themselves in our spending habits. It's so easy to see. Y'all, those things are inextricably linked together. And you may think that I'm talking about spending money like on bad stuff. Maybe you are spending money, but that's just completely not the issue. It's not the issue at all. For me and Susan, and I can speak for myself, I can maybe speak for her a little bit on this, it was, it was our kids. Neither one of us grew up wealthy. We wanted our kids to have more than we had. Is that wrong? That... that it, I'm going to say that is not. there's nothing wrong with that until there is something wrong with it. Does that make sense? 
There's nothing wrong with it until we have put Zach and Will up on a pedestal as an idol and begun to idolize our children. It's so easy for that to happen. And you can fill in that blank in with anything. Golf, cars, vacation homes. What I don't, what, there's a thousand things that you could fill in that blank with. Any of those things, to include our kids, that get in between you and God become an idol. And so we have got to get our, our hearts right this morning. And that verse just keeps popping in my head in, in, in Matthew, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you look at this. If, if God has first place, first spot in the pecking order, not kids, not a house, not golf, not vacation homes, not cars, not donations to the animal shelter, not donations to the Wounded Warrior Project. Those things are not bad per se. I'm not saying those things are bad. But if God has first place in the pecking order, my checkbook is going to reflect that he has first place in the pecking order. And so we have got to listen and we, to that still small voice of the Lord as he kind of speaks to our mind and he speaks to our heart. This is such a heart thing, y'all, and Jesus is in the heart-changing business. That is what he does. So our number one point this morning is that our, our hearts and our checkbooks got to get on the same playing field, number one. Number two is this. I want us to talk through this whole tithing thing. And so if you'll look, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's in your worship guide. It'll be on the screen. This is Paul's wrapping up his letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 16, or beginning to wrap up his letter to the church at Corinth. And this passage gives us a window into the giving of the early church, the way that they did it in the early church. And it should give us uh, principles that will drive the way that giving should be in the church of today. The biggest principle that is going to lay over all of the rest of our conversation is that the cross compels us to give. Not the Old Testament. Are there principles there? There are, and we're going to walk through them. The cross compels us to give. And I'm going to give you four or five ways that the cross compels us to give. So look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. And I'm going to, these are some fill-in-the-blanks in your worship guide. Uh, and we're going to walk through these first three pretty quick, and then we're going to park on four and five. But verse 1 says, Now about the collections for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. So number one, the cross compels us to give regularly. The text says on the first day of every week. So number one, it compels us to give regularly, not harem scarum, not whenever you get a bonus, not, not whenever you feel like it. It compels us to give regularly and systematically. And then it says each one of you. Well, each one of you, the cross compels us to give universally. Not every other person. It says each one of you. It doesn't say some of you. It doesn't say only the rich people. It doesn't say only the people that earn this much income. Those are the people I'm talking to. Each one of you, regardless, each one of you, the cross compels us to give universally. And so it says each one of you should set aside, what, a sum of money in keeping with your income. So the cross compels us to give proportionately. 
in keeping with your income, according to your income. So at the cross, not the law, not the law, the cross compels us to give regularly, it compels us to give universally, all of us, and it compels us to give proportionately in keeping with our income. Fourth, the cross compels us to give corporately. This offering that Paul's writing about in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, it is for the church in Jerusalem. But the vehicle that God uses to get it there is the church at Corinth. You understand that the primary vehicle that the Lord uses to get done what He needs to get done on this side of the cross is the church, the body of believers. Local assemblies of believers all over the planet is the primary, are the primary vehicle that God uses to get things done. And so we see here that giving is a commitment to God. It is also a commitment to the church. It is. And sometimes we have this idea that we are all on our own in this Christian life and we just give wherever and whenever and however we want. And it's not at all that it is wrong to give outside of the church. Of course it's not wrong. But when you read the Scriptures, there is an absolute crystal clear priority of giving in the church for the ministries of the church. On this side of the cross, I'll say this again, on this side of the cross, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, on this side of that, the local assemblies of believers around the planet are the vehicle that the Lord uses to get done what He needs to get done. That's true here at my church. Of course it is. But here's what I know too. And you may be thinking this. You may have said this. You may have thought it and not said it. But the reality is this. Many people say this. Well, I trust God. I just don't trust the church. I tr- yeah, I've been burned by the church. How many of y'all, if you've ever been burned by a church, raise your hand. Y'all are telling stories. Because there should be many more hands. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Many people say, I trust God, but I don't trust the church. 50, 60 years ago, that probably began. And here's what I'll tell you. Unfortunately, the church probably earned that distrust. Probably. Let that never be what we do here. Let it not. We want to be very good stewards of the resources that God entrusts to us. We want to be transparent stewards of the resources that, that God entrusts with us. One of the things that unites us here is giving inside this church to enable the ministries of this church. That's why we give corporately. We're not isolated people. We give together. And there's one more principle that I want us to talk through this morning, and I think it is critical, critical, it is probably one of the, probably of all of them, it is the most um, heart-changing principles. And that is that the cross compels us to give to God first. It's a principle of God being first in every area of our life. It's a principle of He gets the best. Well, why does He get the best? Because He's God. When He's first, things kind of tend, in our lives, things kind of tend to, uh, to be, get in order in our lives. When he's not first, things kind of tend not to be in order in our lives. Look at Exodus 13, verse 12. Here's what it says. 
You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. In other words, you're going to lose it if you don't bring it to the Lord. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So the first point here is the firstborn must be either redeemed or sacrificed. Must be sacrificed or redeemed. It's Old Testament law. But I want us to see if there's a principle in there somewhere that transcends time down to us in 2019. How do you know which one to do? Do you sacrifice? Do you, do, do you redeem? How do you know which one to do? Well, the Lord in His wisdom in this text gives us two examples, unclean and clean. The donkey is an unclean animal. A lamb is a clean animal. Here's what He's saying. If your unclean animal has a firstborn, it's got to be redeemed by the sacrifice of a clean animal. If a clean animal has a firstborn, it's got to be sacrificed. To who? To the Lord. So if an unclean animal has a firstborn, it's got to be bought back. It's got to be redeemed by the sacrifice of a clean. Now you're sitting there thinking, what in the world does any of this have anything whatsoever to do with us talking about tithing and money in 2019? Well, here's the deal. There's a principle that we need to see. And again, clean animals got to be sacrificed. Unclean animals got to be bought back by the sacrifice of a clean animal. Let me ask you a couple questions. When me and you were born, well, how was our spiritual condition, clean or unclean? Unclean. We're born sinful. We have a bent and inclination towards sin. Jesus, when he was born, clean or unclean? Clean. He had no bent towards sin. He had no sinful nature. So the clean had to be sacrificed to buy back the unclean. That is the principle. That is the principle of first fruits. And we're going to talk about the first fruits being the tithe. And tithing is all about giving our best and our first to God. It's saying, God, I'm, I'm going to give to you first, and I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of all the rest. It always requires faith to give your best and first. And it is as if me and you are saying to God, I recognize you first, I'm putting you first in my life, and I trust that you're going to take care of all of the rest of the things in my life. So the firstborn has got to either be redeemed or sacrificed. And the second point is this, the first fruits must be brought. B-R-O-U-G-H-T, the first fruits must be brought. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, and then Exodus 23, 19. Honor the, Lord you, uh, the, honor, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And Exodus 23 says this, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So the tithe always comes into God's house. The tithe comes in. Any other giving, that's not what the text says. The tithe has been set apart and consecrated, and it comes, and he uses the word bring in Exodus 23:19. God doesn't use the word give when he talks about tithing. He always uses the word bring. And the reason that is that he uses the word bring, and the reason that you can't give it is because you can't give what doesn't belong to you. You either can bring it, or you can steal it because it doesn't belong to you. And if you study tithing, those are the words that are used 
when the Lord talks about tithing, bring and steal. Because it belongs to the Lord. And you may say, well, everything, it all belongs to the Lord. And I understand it does all belong to the Lord. But he's consecrated this part. He set apart. He set aside this 10%. He's consecrated it for the house of the Lord. So the firstborn has got to be sacrificed or redeemed, number one. Number two, um, number two, you've got to bring it. It's got to be brought, he says. And the third, uh, the third principle is that the tithe must be first. And it's simple because God owns it, and everything God's, God owns is first because He's first. And so the tithe must be first. It belongs to Him. Leviticus 27, verse 30, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. Holy is consecrated or set apart or set aside. So it, it belongs to Him. It's holy. So how does it work out that we need to, to bring the first 10%? How does that work out? How does the math, how does that all play out? Say I got, got a, had a job yesterday and I got $1,000. I got 10 of these $100 bills. How real do these look? Printed on the printer in the church office. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Anyway, they really do, except for the little white part on them. Here's the deal. I got $1,000 paycheck yesterday. How much is the tithe? How much? $100. So the tithe is $100. Okay, but I've got 10 of these $100 bills. Which, which one is it? The first one what? The, who said, you said the first one I spend. It's correct. The first one that comes out of my, my hand is the tithe. But, but here's, here's what, what happens. I got to pay my mortgage. I got to pay my car note. I got to pay the power bill. I got to pay the water bill. I got to pay for school. I got to pay for this. Susan wants some clothes. I do all. I do. I do all that, and then here's my tithe. Well, no, no, that was my tithe. I gave it to the mortgage company, y'all. But Rocket Mortgage didn't die on a cross. Do you understand that? Rocket Mortgage didn't die on a cross to allow you to be saved. The Lord did. So the first, you want to change sort of everything kind of when we're talking about finances and and giving and bringing in this. When when it is the first 10% that comes out, it changes the way that you look at things. I mean, it very much changes it. But here's what we do sometimes. We say, well, I got this and I got this and I got that 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 and I get all the way down here and I don't have anything left over for church. We don't serve, it wasn't a leftover God that died on the cross. We don't serve a God that is the God of leftovers. We serve a God that is first. So it is the, you give the first 10%. It's not the last 10%. It doesn't take faith to give the last 10%. It doesn't take faith and trust to pay all the bills and then give the last. That's not faith. God doesn't say have 10 lambs and you pick out the scrawniest, most pitiful one and give me that one. You give me the one that you choose. That's not what he says. He says, give me the first one. The first one that opens the womb, give me that one. And then he says, and I'll redeem the rest. So the first portion is the redemptive portion. So let's be real. You are not condemned if you struggle. If churches have told you in the past, 
if pastors have laid some crazy guilt trip on you and made you feel guilty for struggling in this area, that's a lie from hell because that's not God doing that. It's not. And so if you struggle with this, get in line, bro. I was totally there. That struggle does not, it's not a, that's not a salvation issue. But, but here's what I also know. I know that this is what, this is the reason people don't tithe. Because you sit down and you say, look, man, I just can't afford it. I can't, I can't afford to tithe. But I want you to hear this and listen to this and let this get in your minds. You will never be able to afford to tithe until you begin to tithe. You'll never be able to afford to do it until you begin to do it. Susan and I are married two years or so probably. And my dad, this may be a bad analogy, but I think it's a good one. We've been married two or three years, and my dad says to me, when are y'all going to have children? Laying that old Jewish guilt stuff on you. When are y'all going to have children? And I said, well, when we can afford to. And he said, well, then you're never going to have children. Because if you wait to have children until you can afford to have children, you're never going to have children. It's the same thing. You will be able to afford to tithe as soon as you begin to tithe. You know what? The floodgates of heaven open up. It's one of the things that the, when you begin to tithe, the floodgates of heaven open up and God just begins to pour all of himself into you. Which this is not a prosperity gospel-y message. Because I don't mean that you're going to tithe and then you're going to get a 50% uh, raise in salary. I'm not saying that you're going to start tithing and a new car is going to show up in your driveway. You know what might happen? You might start tithing and the engine in your Jeep blows out. You know, that may very well. So, but all of God pouring all of who he is in you, this, this fully being bought in and trusting him allows that to sort of happen. And so if you're not a giver today, you know, I would say, here's what, I, begin with 4%, 5%, 8%, 7%, 6%, whatever it is, whatever. Make it 15 if you want to make it 15%. Whatever it is, it's a heart issue. It is a trust issue. It is a, it's a faith issue. And I want to end this looking at the last two verses of Exodus 13 this passage we've gone over, this is verse 14 and 15. And you remember that he's talking about the firstborn, first fruits, all of that. And so verse 14 says this, And when in time your son asks you, so this is a, is a dad and he's, his son has seen, you know, uh, seen him sacrifice, and it's all talking about you know, the, the sacrifice or the redeeming in verses 12 and 13. So when in time your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. So he's talking to his son about when the Israelites, remember this is the book of Exodus, when the Israelites got out of slavery. And his son has seen him sacrifice these animals. He's like, what are you doing? And so he says, this is a model of what the Lord did to get us out of Egypt. And then he says, Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And I want you all, you may see, think this is cheesy, but I want you to do it. I want to paint a picture for you, a mental picture for you. I want everybody in this room to close your eyes and just listen to what I'm saying and let me paint this little image for you. 
think about somewhere in the plains of Kansas, little house on the prairie, farm, land, yada, yada. Family on a farm, and little boy runs into the kitchen. Mom and daddy are in the kitchen. Little boy runs in the kitchen, and he says, Mama, the sheep's having a lamb out in the barn, and it's her firstborn. And so mama and daddy and the, and the, uh, and the little boy, they run out of the kitchen into the, into the barn, and daddy grabs a butcher knife on the way. And so they get out to the barn, and they gather around. They see this lamb, and this lamb's newly born lamb, and he's kind of got them wobbly feet and legs. And, and, and he's, look, he's so cute, and he's standing up. And then dad goes over, grabs him by the hind legs, and slits his throat. And the little boy's watching all that. And, and he's, the little boy's thinking, man, don't mess with daddy. Don't know what the lamb did, but I don't want to do that. So anyway, the son grows up, and he goes off to college. And he's, he's, before he leaves to go off to college, he spent his whole life, and he's watching his dad do this over and over and over, year after year and after year, sacrificing these animals. And then he goes off to school, and he gets this uh, accounting degree off at college, and he graduates, and he comes home. Into the, and he goes into the family farming business with his dad, and the dad looks at him and he says, Son, you got that fancy degree. Why don't you keep our books for the farm? And one day the, the, he's looking over the books for his dad. And he says to his dad, Well, Dad, we need to talk. Like, we really need to talk. Well, And, you know, Dad, business is kind of tough. And I've been going over the books. And, well, Dad, you don't have that knife in your pocket by chance, do you? But, you know, Dad... You're the hardest working dude that I know. And you might not even know, Dad, that you're doing this, but Dad, you asked me to go over the books, and every time one of our animals has a firstborn, well, Dad, you kill it. And you've killed 59 of them this year, Dad. And business is not so great. And that's 59 profit centers for the farm, Dad. And you keep killing, you're killing our profits. Why, Dad, do you do that? And, and the dad looks at the son and he says, Well, son, there's something about our family that you just really don't know. He says, son, we were not always in the ranching business. Son, we didn't have animals. Son, we had nothing. We didn't have anything. Son, we were slaves. Son, we owned nothing. Son, we were in bondage. Son, but God, with a mighty, mighty hand, brought us out of the house of slavery. Son, God redeemed us out of bondage. He liberated us from our bondage. Son, He gave us every single thing that we have. Therefore, Son, we gladly, we gladly give Him our first and our best. And so I want to ask you all, you can open your eyes. I want to ask you, everybody here, I want to ask you, are you giving to this house? Are you bringing your first fruits to this house? Is your giving a reflection of a God-transformed heart? Is it, a, is it a, an image of, the, of your commitment to this body of believers? Is it a picture of your unity with this body of believers? Is your giving regular? Is it consistent? Is it systematic and methodical? Is you, are you given in a way, in a proportional way, in a way that reflects that God has given you everything that you have? Are you bringing God your first fruits? And not, this is not a guilt thing. It's not a guilt thing. I live my whole life with this guilt stuff. It is not a guilt thing. It's a get-to thing. 
God changed my heart. I get to give. God changed my heart. I, I, I get to bring the, my first fruits into the house. God changed my heart. I get to work in my tots. God changed my heart. I get to be kind now. God softened my heart. was hard. God softened my heart. I get to be kind now. And I'm a reflection of His kindness. God changed my heart. I get to work in the, in the parking lot, helping people park cars. God changed my heart. I get to sit down and pray with somebody. I said one time to Susan, I got home one night late and I had Bible study the next morning. I said, oh my goodness, I've got Bible study tomorrow morning. She says, no, you get to study the Bible tomorrow morning. Why is that? Because my heart has been changed. He's a heart-changing God. And so I tell you, look, if you're not currently giving, bringing into this house, I'm not asking you to make excuses why you're not. I'm, I'm saying just start now according to the biblical principles that we talked about today. Not because of, of something I said, because of what the Bible says. The cross compels us to give. Not the Old Testament law. The cross didn't lower the bar. The cross raised the bar. So when you say we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace, well, that didn't bring the bar down, brother. That raised the bar. Y'all get that? What does the cross compel us to do? And it's not about guilt. So don't go down that road. It's so not about guilt. It's about God's grace towards me and you. And I want you to ask this question of yourself. What would the cross of Christ compel me to do with the resources that God has given me? And just obey the answer, whatever the answer is. What would the cross of Christ, not Leviticus 27.30, not Exodus chapter 13, not Malachi 3, none of that. What does the cross compel me to do with the resources that God has entrusted with me? And then just be obedient to the answer. This is not complicated, y'all. It's not. What would the cross... You bring 9% into the house. Are you going to hell? No. If you bring nothing into the house, are you going... This is not a salvation issue. It's a trust, a faith, and a heart change issue. So I want you to ask yourself that question. We've talked so much about the heart this morning. And here's the reality of that. Worship team sang this song a little while ago about being liberated from our bondage. And every one of us, if you're a believer... You've been liberated from the bondage. If you're not a believer today, if you have not said yes to the offer, then you're still entrapped in that bondage. And so I'm begging you right now, get liberated today because that transaction that happened on the cross, that redemption where the, the clean was sacrificed for the unclean, y'all, that was Christ being sacrificed for my filth. I brought nothing to the table. And he did that. And so if that hasn't happened for you, I'm telling you right now, repent and believe that that happened for you. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. We are so thankful that we get to be in your house, that we get to serve in your name, that we get to bring glory to your name through the ministries of our church. Lord, I hope and I pray that every one of us understands that that the church is the vehicle that you use. That at the birth of your church, Lord, in Acts chapter 2, that that was the beginning of the church being used as the vehicle, the vehicle 
to spread your gospel, the vehicle to do what you wanted done in the world. And so, Lord, I thank you for the church. I thank you for churches all over Columbus and all over the world. Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity to to do things for you. So, Lord, I pray a blessing over all of the people in this local assembly that we would all dig into your text and just grow in our relationship with you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.